Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And if I've missed anyone, I apologize. Uh, my name is Tom Palmer, and it's my pleasure and indeed my honor to welcome you to the first Cato University program of 2018, our College of Law. Now, Cato University is part of my portfolio at the Cato Institute, where I'm a, a senior fellow. And I'm also executive vice president for international programs at the Atlas Network, in which capacity I work with hundreds of other think tanks like the Cato Institute around the world. I used to be employed 100% at the Cato Institute as vice president for international programs, and we switched all those programs over to Atlas on January 1, 2009, and I kept this portfolio here. And now I tell people I used to be 100% at the Cato Institute, and now I'm 90% of the Atlas Network and 60% at the Cato Institute. <laughs> Well, it's very good to see a number of uh, longtime friends. I learned years ago not to say old friends, uh, but also uh, some new faces, unfamiliar faces, who I hope will become friends by the end of the program. And part of my job of welcoming and opening the seminar is to uh, tell you a bit about the Cato Institute. Some of you already know that, uh, but some of you are newcomers also. Last year, Cato celebrated our 40th anniversary of promoting liberty. The mission of the Cato Institute is very clear as adopted by the board of directors to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open, and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now, those principles used to be called liberal, and indeed, in much of the world where I spend most of my time, they're still called that, uh, liberalism. Uh, the United States is unique in this regard, or, or there are not many countries that have this experience of the word liberal meaning something like its opposite. The economist Joseph Schumpeter noted about the United States, his adopted country, he was from Austria, he said, as a supreme, if unintended, compliment, the enemies of private enterprise have thought it wise to appropriate its label. So if I sometimes lapse and talk about liberal ideas or liberal policies or liberal principles, please forgive me. And remember that I'm using it in its classical sense, uh, for which sometimes the term libertarian is used in the United States and various other terms, fundamentally belief in limited government, the rule of law, and individual liberty. Now, Cato Institute is organized as a public policy research institute under rules of Section 501C3 of the United States Federal Tax Code, one of the most astonishing accomplishments of the human spirit. Uh, and that means that someone who invests in our work is able to deduct the amount of that donation or investment from his or her taxable income. I have to explain this on college campuses where my, uh, the professors think you get rich by donating to Cato. Would that it were so. If you're taxed at a 30% rate and you donate $100, you take $100 off your taxable income, saving $30, so the cost of your donation is 70 rather than 30. Most of the professors on the other side seem to think your deduction is $1,000 for giving 100. 
Unfortunately, that is not the case. But anyone who's not convinced, please talk to me afterwards. Uh, also, our financial support is 100% voluntary. We receive no governmental funds, neither from the United States government nor from any other government. And we are very careful to keep that firewall intact. That is a very important principle at Cato, that no money comes into our coffers or flows through our accounts or subsidizes our programs that came from taxpayers. The great bulk, about 80% of our revenue comes from individual donors. Those are actually materially and numerically individuated human persons, to use a technical language, who write a check or send Bitcoin or wires or what have you, uh, from their wealth to support this work. We get a smaller percentage from foundations, hovers about 15%. Many of those are individuals where they've set up a family foundation as well. 1% uh, from corporations, which is why we are referred to regularly as the corporate-funded Cato Institute. Uh, and 4% from the sale of books, registration fees for conferences, uh, and other program income. So Cato relies on the support of about 15,000 current loyal sponsors who uh, support the Institute, and Cato raises and spends its budget every year. They do it because it is an expression of their personal commitment to liberty, limited government, freedom of trade, and peace. Most of the work that Cato does is focused on particular issues of public policy, taxes, spending, regulations, foreign and military policy, criminal justice, war on drugs, freedom of speech, property rights protection, healthcare policy, and so on and so on. But here we're different from many other uh, institutions in the think tank world. We don't claim that we don't have an agenda. I spoke some years ago at a meetings of all of the Fulbright scholars in the United States and there was uh, an officer from another prominent Washington think tank. I won't mention the bro well, I won't <laughs> mention the name of the think tank. Uh, and this person said, "Unlike the Cato Institute, we do not have any agenda." <clears throat> and the only person really fooled was the person who said it, who I think probably was sincere. I, I really don't doubt that. But it's silly. Just the questions that you ask tell me about what is your agenda. There's nothing wrong with having an agenda. It means having principles and values and things you want to see instantiated in the world. We ask a very difficult question in Washington all the time. And there's a reason why we have these little pocket constitutions. Um, I was involved in designing it. And I said, I want one that will go into a lady's handbag or a gentleman's man purse, uh, or into a front shirt pocket, or a rancher's back pocket, so that they can know what is the constitutional law, the Constitution of the United States of America. I encourage you to take two, one for yourself and one for the poor person on the plane next to you as you fly home. And the question that we like to ask, and it's nice to have this in your pocket when you ask it, is where in the United States Constitution is the proposed power in this legislation authorized? Can you show me? And then when they rattle off something, you say, would you please find it for me in this document? And normally, of course, 
they can't. It's a really awkward question in Washington, D.C. It's like you made some really unpleasant bodily sound uh, in front of other people to ask that question. People roll their eyes and look away and <clears throat> cough nervously. But we think it's an important question. We ask it all the time, and we will continue to do so. Because it tells you about our agenda. We believe in the rule of law, in the principles of constitutionally limited government, in the presumption of liberty rather than the presumption of power. Now, when newspapers print headlines such as, Senate fails to pass new gun control bill, or whatever it may happen to be, that says something about their agenda. The presumption is they should have done that, and they failed to do that, rather than Senate succeeds in defeating unconstitutional scheme, which is <laughs> how I might have written the headline. We believe that it's much better to put your values up front. These are our principles, and we do not hide them or smuggle them in. Now, our mission stated that we advance the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And we believe putting them up front makes you better at what you do and more attentive to the virtues of intellectual excellence, accuracy, objectivity, and fairness. We do not smuggle our principles in. We put them out for everyone to see, and we acknowledge and defend them. And then we work to make sure that our research is not tilted by them, that we do not do research that comes to the conclusions that we expected or hoped for, but that this is objective, authentic social science and research. And putting your principles up front helps you to be more honest. The standards for studies from the Cato Institute require all the numbers and the facts and the citations be checked and rechecked and rechecked that the work is in pursuit of the public interest and not an expression of any special or partial interest. And this is very important and something I stress when I teach courses with our young research associates and interns, that the arguments and evidence for competing proposals be met in their strongest and not their weakest forms. Setting up straw men and knocking them down is not a worthy or successful way to advance our principles. So when we publish a study, we invite the smartest critics who are going to disagree, whether they come from right or left or wherever, to come and say why they think it's all wrong. And the reason is, if the author cannot stand up to that, we should not publish that study. That sets a very clear benchmark. We're not just talking about a blind public policy. Everything that we do at Cato has our basic principles, our touchstone and we defend them directly, and we try to advance them. And Cato University is one of the vehicles through which we do that. We started running seminars on political economy in 1978. This is pre-Twitter days. <clears throat> I attended the first one that year at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, and then we reorganized and relaunched them in 1997 under the brand name of Cato University. And last year, we switched the program. It used to be a week-long, very intense program. And one of the things that we learned was there was a missing demographic group. We had attendees up to about 25. And then they started again at about 45. And after intensive research, we understood that's when their children are young. And not many parents can take a week off. So we switched instead to breaking it up into three seminars 
of a long weekend, which more people can take advantage of. In August of this year, we'll have the College of History and Philosophy in beautiful, sunny San Diego, California. And then in October, the College of Economics in historic Boston, where Cato's Director of Economic Policy Studies moonlights. He's got this side gig as a professor of economics at Harvard University. Now, before turning over uh, directly to an overview of the topic of law and freedom, I'd like to ask the Cato Institute uh, board member, Jay LaPierre, uh, to come up and address us. I had the privilege of visiting yesterday his amazing and authentically beautiful business. Uh, it was really quite astonishing to see what they create. They're machines that are works of great beauty. Uh, Jay is well known here in Louisiana as an entrepreneur, a civic leader, and an educator. He's the president of the Latrim Machinery Country, uh, a company, pardon me. Also the board chair of the Atlas Society, which is occasionally confused with the Atlas Network, where I work, but that's okay, because we're all friends. And he's also a member of the board of directors of the Cato Institute. Jay, please come on up. <clears throat> Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you, Sally, and all of the organizers, uh, speakers who are here. Thank you all for attending. I think um, uh, the fact that you travel distances to, uh, to come here is a great indicator of your, your uh, love of liberty and interest in, in learning. And thanks for the New Orleans uh, people that, um, that uh, Caroline and Bo and Sally and I roped into uh, attending, whether they wanted to be here or not. Uh, Caroline, especially, uh, thank you for um, the incredible energy and passion you bring to, to this uh, and, and to getting people here. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, Tom has been a hero of mine. I, I, I honestly don't remember when I first read your, your first material or became exposed uh, to your work, but, but, um, I do remember when my son James was interning at, at, uh, at Cato, and he said, um, and Tom, you must have been in charge of, of uh, the interns at the time, and he said that Tom Palmer was the smartest person in Washington. And I thought for a minute, and I thought, I wonder how James knows that. <laughs> and, then, and then I realized, of course, that's because Tom told him that. So that's how that, that's how that, that's how that had to work out. So uh, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about um, why I support, why liberty is important and why I support Cato and other uh, liberty organizations. And the, uh, the founding principles of, the, of the, this country, of the United States, the, the idea that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we are all ena each enabled with certain unalienable rights. Among those rights include the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And governments are instituted in order to protect those rights. And I may have missed a, a word or two on that. That was such a revolution. I, I, I should have just read it, right? It's right here. I, that was such a revolutionary and profound concept, the idea that I am not a means to someone else's end, that I am an end in myself, that I have the right to my life. That began 
the, the story of this country that began, it, it resulted in a revolution. It also inspired the abolitionists, which, which then uh, brought us to a civil war. And it has inspired, and that language inspires globally. It's the one thing that people know everywhere around the world, wherever you go, that's what America stood for. It stood for the individual and that right. And it has inspired liberty movements that, that Tom lives and, and, and knows about all over the world today. It's a powerful, powerful uh, uh, thing. And the, the idea that the purpose of government was to protect those rights and that, and that, there was, and that everything you did could be, could be uh, assessed through a filter of whether it promoted liberty or not has given me a worldview that helps me to integrate my personal understanding of the world, my work world, and my civic and my government in engagement with, uh, with things. So when I was in school, I read Ayn Rand and became enamored with these ideas, and I was told that it was an, an infantile, adolescent philosophy, and I'll outgrow it. And I've been, uh, that was some 45 years ago, and I'm still working on that, outgrowing it, because as I have watched the red team and the blue team, fight and watch them switch positions depending on the color of the jersey or who's in the game. I have admired the organizations that stood with principle and Tom just framed those and in terms of Cato. But there are numbers of other uh, liberty-leaning organizations and supporting uh, organizations that I think do great work. And I think that it's an opportunity for us to look and say, the most important, the single most elevating an important concept in the world today is liberty. Seven and a half billion people on the planet, a little smidgen of liberty has started to sprinkle in in the past 30 years, 20 years, and we've seen an unbelievable acceleration in human prosperity and, and well-being. And for me, the opportunity to, to say I believe in that, I'm part of that, I'm supporting that, is tremendously inspiring and, and elevating. And I would say that's the reason that most of the people at Cato support Cato, and it's the reason I challenge each of us to understand these ideas and to, uh, and to support this, this liberty uh, movement. So Tom, thank you for uh, all the work you do, and we look forward to what'll be a lot of fun tonight. And thank you all for being here, thank you. Thank you, Jay. Uh, for the welcome to New Orleans. I was outed as not a local when I said New Orleans earlier. Uh, and for kicking off this Cato University. I'd like to add a little bit more on, on what to expect from this particular seminar and why law is so important to a free society. Uh, I hear people speak casually about how there are just too many laws or we're choked with laws. And the implication is that law and freedom are somehow in a trade-off relationship. More law means less freedom, right? And more freedom means less law. And it leads some people to say, I'm just against government or against laws or even against rules. And I think that's a fundamental mistake. It's a very deep error. Advocates of liberty are not anti-government. There are places in the world that don't have functioning governments. Don't go there. Advocates of liberty support freedom, and freedom requires some kind of institutions. The absence of the state is not 
by itself, at least, the enjoyment of liberty. I've been in places that do not have functioning states, and when I sometimes hear college students say, oh, it must be great to live in Somalia, there's no government, I say, I tell you what, let's do some field research. <laughs> I will sponsor you to go there, but let's do it intelligently. I'll buy the one-way ticket, and if after a week you're alive, I'll pay for the return side. Uh, no one ever takes me up on that. Uh, what we favor are the institutions of liberty. The presence of freedom requires limited government and some institutions to provide rules of just conduct. Now, one of the great achievements in human history has been the subjection of power to law. We have long associated law with the powerful giving laws, but how is it that we can subject them to the law? And that by itself is one of humanity's greatest accomplishments, and a subject that we will deal with at some length, also at the uh, Cato University College of History and Philosophy. One of the greatest figures in this classical liberal tradition was John Locke. He was a philosopher, he was a medical doctor, he was a political activist in England, and he put it very directly. The end, or purpose, of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. For in all the states of created beings capable of laws, where there is no law, there is no freedom. For liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others which cannot be where there is no law. But freedom is not, as we are told, a liberty for every man to do what he lists. This is the criticism of Sir Robert Filmer, an advocate of absolutism. To list means what you're inclined to do. Just do whatever you want. Locke called that license instead. He continued, for who could be free when every other man's humor might domineer over him? But a liberty to dispose in order as he lists, as he is inclined his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. So where there is no law, there is no freedom. And the opposite of freedom is arbitrary power or will. Now I spent a lot of time in the communist world and then in the post-Soviet, post-communist states, and that's where I came to have a much deeper appreciation of Locke's idea. I was involved in uh, 1989, 1990 in the Soviet Union, uh, organizing the Cato Institute's first conference there uh, in the Soviet Union. And it uh, was quite an experience. Uh, we had it, by the way, in a, a building uh, that we managed to acquire from the Academy of Sciences, and it was crumbly and broken down, and I, I asked the foreigners who were there from Sweden and England, Canada, US, and so on, I'd say, how do you think this building is? And they'd touch it, and everything was crumbly, and what you put your hand on the railing, it broke off when you're going up the stairs. I said, well, how do you think this building is? They said, oh, I don't know, 60, 70 years? I said, it was finished six months ago. And the Soviet Union, they, they were very convenient and made everything pre-broken. So you didn't have to break it in yourself. It was already damaged. Uh, but at that, Milton Friedman, who is a very great friend of the Cato Institute, um, 
spoke about what needed to be done. And there were three things he said needed to be done in the Soviet Union at that time, as they were understanding we have to get out of the system. What, what are we going to do? He said three things. Privatize, privatize, and privatize. At Cato's last conference in Moscow, in Russia, in 2004, he was uh, ailing, so he sent a video message to the audience, and he expressed uh, his humility and modesty. One of the things I admired about him was he did not feel full of himself all the time. He was a very humble person. And he said, you know, I was asked this question 15 years ago, how do we go from a centrally planned society to a free market society? And here's what he said. When I was first asked that question about 15 years ago, I had a very simple, straightforward answer. Three words, privatize, privatize, privatize. In the light of the past years, we know that that's much too simple an answer. It has to be accompanied by at least two more things, providing a legal framework for private property and providing a reasonably stable monetary system. At the time, they had experienced hyperinflation. He understood his earlier answer was completely inadequate. Privatize into what? When there are no laws of property, there are not judges who understand property, there are almost no trained lawyers. I organized conferences on legal education uh, for communist countries, and I remember we had a conference in uh, Budapest, and we had professors I brought from the United States, from Great Britain, from Belgium, and Germany to talk about uh, teaching law, and one professor said, what do you do if you've written a contract to build a house for 100,000 forint, it's Hungarian money, but you discover after you sign the contract the cost of materials has risen and it will cost you 180,000 forint to complete the house? And the answer from a number of the law professors from communist countries was, you would write another contract. And he said, well, then it's not a contract. And he explained the idea of specifying non-performance and monetary damages. You anticipate this. These were professors of law at universities in the Soviet Union, in Romania, in Bulgaria, and elsewhere. And they had no concept of what a contract was about. William Niskanen, the late economist who was uh, chairman of the Cato Institute, had a nice phrase for this. He called it the soft infrastructure of the free society. It's the part you can't touch. People think of infrastructure as bridges and roads and things, dams and things like that. But the most important infrastructure is the part you can't touch. It's the laws and the institutions. So if law is a necessary framework for liberty, where does it come from? How do we get it? And if it's created by someone or some group, can that person or group be subjected to it? And those questions are at the very foundation of the American Republic. The issue had been raised in very stark form in Great Britain in the year 1598, when King James VI of Scotland, shortly after to become 1603 King James I of England, who was known as King James VI and I, but I always explain, you, you can't add kingships, you can't be King James VII. And he wrote, a, a long uh, paper, and he proved that because the king makes the law, quote, the king is above the law, is both the author and the giver of strength thereto. 
Now, after James had come to the throne in 1603, he made a speech to the Lords and Commons at, of the Parliament at Whitehall. And he railed against the ideas of popular consent and the rule of law, and he stated, as to dispute what God may do is blasphemy, so it is sedition in subjects to dispute what a king may do in the height of his power. The English were having none of that. And they asserted the supremacy of law and right above power. William Pitt the Elder in the House of Commons in 1763, many years later, famously declaimed one of the most beautiful speeches about the law. The poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the forces of the crown. It may be frail. Its roof may shake. The wind may blow through it. The storm may enter. The rain may enter. But the king of England cannot enter. All his force dares not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement because he was protected by the law. And the law was what kept all of that power and force out of his little cottage. Now the key then is to see law as something that is not merely created and imposed, but discovered. Law can be discovered as well. And it's an unintended byproduct of human activity. So it's common for those who think if you create the law, you can make a new one anytime you find it inconvenient. And most politicians think this way. The law is for the little people like you, not for me, obviously. But the principle that uh, animates them is the idea, I make it, I cannot make it. It cannot apply to me. But think about other things that we describe as laws. The laws of the interaction of physical objects. So two objects are attracted by a force inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. Sir Isaac Newton worked that out as the force law that would be used to describe the elliptical orbits that Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler had painstakingly worked out. It did not follow from that that he was exempt from that law because he had discovered it. Had we shot Sir Isaac Newton into orbit, he would have some interesting non-elliptical orbit uh, through the solar system, for example. Instead of seeing law as something that's merely created and imposed on people, which is a very common understanding of law and the one that all authoritarian states propose, the Harvard legal philosopher Lon Fuller stated a very, in nice terms, the alternative classical liberal perspective. Law is the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. Law is about rules. It is a human enterprise that we undertake to subject our behavior to rules. Now those rules can be made explicitly or they can be an unintended byproduct. When kids in the cafeteria at a very young age learn, you put your little stack of books here, that's your seat. You can go get your food and come back. And everyone knows if some bully moves the books, that bully will be condemned by everyone else. That bully broke the law. That's a law that children create for themselves. It seems to be common everywhere. Law emerges from our interactions with one another, and it creates the framework that allows us to cooperate peacefully and to create social order. And here's where the idea of order comes in. These days, when you hear the phrase law and order, 
It's normally associated with brutal violence, with policemen, with truncheons, smashing people in the head, with authoritarian powers asserting themselves, law and order. It has come to have a very bad odor, and for good reasons. But many years ago, it did not mean that. It meant an orderly society in which people could go about their affairs peacefully. It was not always associated with authoritarian power. Order in this contemporary usage of the term law and order is associated exclusively with the kind of order we think of in a military march, which is orderly in a certain way. Everyone marches, they reach a certain point, they turn left, and so on. That's a kind of order. But there are lots of other kinds of order in human life as well. Spontaneous, unplanned, and uncommanded, but no less orderly. And the foundation of that kind of order is abstract general rules. F.A. Hayek, another great friend of the Cato Institute, who spoke at Cato and was very fond of the Institute. In his later years, Cato helped to support him, paying the, secretary, uh, the salary of his secretary. He wrote of a spontaneous and abstract order of actions in free societies, in which the order is not centrally directed by any power, it is abstract in character, following rules that do not aim at this or that particular end, or for the benefit of this or that particular group. They're general. They're capable of general application, applied to other persons and other circumstances. The free society is not planned as a whole. Politicians normally express their behavior as follows. Now, this is across the political spectrum. I'm running the country. Sometimes we've heard them called as the commander in chief of the United States. The United States does not have a commander in chief. The armed forces of the United States have a commander in chief. The United States does not. The president does not run the country. It's a fantasy. The country runs itself. The expression in French, so clear, laissez faire, laissez passer, let people do what they want, come and go as they will, Le monde va de lui-même. The world runs itself, in contrast to those politicians who think they're running the world. They're not. The world runs itself. It's more orderly in this important way than a society that is ruled by an arbitrary and unlimited power. Free societies provide a high degree of coordination among people with widely disparate aims and interests and they run on general rules, not concrete commands. That is what makes social order possible. So the rule of law is a law of rules. And a law is not a command that must be obeyed, but a general rule applicable to many persons and circumstances. Such general rules applicable, are applicable not only to citizens, but to members and employees of government as well. That is one of the key instruments. No one is above the law. No one can say the law is for you and not for me. And that is the best foundation for order, peace, harmony, and prosperity. The key question for economists is not, why is there disorder? The key question is, why is there order in the world and human affairs? So take a very simple example. 
This is basically, this is the most important question in economics. Set aside all these complicated things people write doctoral dissertations on. When you go to the grocery store, why is all that stuff there? How did it get there? Why is it here now? Now remember in the Soviet Union, you couldn't get fresh fish because fresh fish would be delivered if any fish were delivered on Thursday and the ice arrived Monday the next week. Right? They couldn't coordinate these things. Somehow in free societies, ice and fish arrive at the same time. Amazing. How does that happen? How did it get there? Well, it's because of the institutions, the laws that help us to coordinate our behavior without force, without commands, without a brilliant ruler, without any ministry of central planning. We have learned that what makes a nation wealthy is not gold, it is not diamonds, it is not oil, it is law. Law is what makes a country rich. Whether it is the Netherlands in the 17th century, which had no natural resources, not even land. If you've ever been there, you'll understand what I mean. They have to make land out of the sea. That's why it's called the Netherlands. It's below sea level. Or Hong Kong in the 20th century. There's nothing there. It's a bunch of big rocks with Chinese people on them. That's it. And a port. But the key thing is the rule of law. That is, it turns out, the most important factor of production. Not natural resources, not iron, not gold, not oil, but law. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the matter that we will explore over this brief seminar. Now, I've talked about the importance of the rule of law, which led to a discussion of rules, which help us to coordinate our behavior for mutual benefit. So, here are the rules of this Cato University College of Law. And the first thing I'm going to ask people to do is to set your watches, for all you young people that means your cell phones, uh, to not just Louisiana time, but to Swiss time. Because I like to run seminars on Swiss principles. And if you've been to Switzerland, you understand Swiss people consider Germans to be lazy and indolent. Uh, if in Germany, as I explained when I take foreigners to Germany, I say, we have to be at the train station. The train will leave at 1537. They say, yeah, 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 yeah. I say, you don't understand. <laughs> at 1537, the doors will be closed and it will be moving. So the first time they miss the train, they begin to, it dawns on them. If it's 30 seconds late, the Germans will deal with it. The Swiss will make a complaint if it's 30 seconds late. So I like Swiss time, which means when we start at 9 o'clock, someone will be standing here, we're going to be in this room, and at exactly 9 o'clock, that person's mouth will open and sound will come out <laughs> at exactly 9. But there's a deal. At 10.30, when it ends, I have snipers positioned throughout the room. And at 10.30, it's finished, which means we could have the break. Everyone knows how much time we have for coffee and so on. And then we come back and start again. And it turns out, even when I do conferences like this in Guatemala and Egypt, everyone likes it because you know when it's going to start and be on time. 
The name tags, I really encourage people to wear these. And you notice the names are fairly big. It's a nice way to A, make new friends, and B, cover up the fact you're getting old and can't remember people's names. So it's a nice uh, way to handle that. And here's the trick that I use for myself. When I go into the hotel room, the first thing I do is I take off the name tag and I take my key and I put them in front of the door. So in the morning when I'm leaving, I don't have to say, where did I put the damn key? And where's my name tag? There they are to greet me. So I can pick them up and go out. The breakfasts and meals are going to be uh, in the room across the way and the sessions will be here. Now some of the people here are scholarship recipients uh, and there are going to be some special sessions that my colleagues, uh, my colleague uh, Katie here has organized. Is Katie here? Please stand up, there she is. Um, and those are an important part of the program. We'll talk about all kinds of things, about being successful uh, in life. And also we're gonna ask you to write letters. I'm very old fashioned. I was raised writing letters to people, thanking them for the ugly socks I had gotten for Christmas. Uh, and we believe, I believe very strongly in letters, so ask a letter to those people who sacrifice their money to fund a scholarship to come here. And, uh, and just talk to them about what you have, and we share them with those people, and they're like me, and they like it uh, when they get it. It shows them that they did something important. I mentioned being on time, so I'm gonna mention for the young people here. I also was once young. And I remember, so never think that uh, <clears throat> old people were always old. They were young at one time. The, the normal perspective, I understand, is that all the young people look around and they say, wow, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are old people and young people. I'm lucky, <laughs> right? Uh, so I remember it, and I remember it was very hard to get up in the morning, especially when you're on Bourbon Street and so on. So here's the deal. Set your cell phones with multiple wake-up times. The hotel will give you a wake-up call, which is irritating, and it's a good thing. Make your telephone be on the other side of the room for when you wake up and you stagger forward to turn it off, you have to walk there. Keep the drapes open to let in the sun, and don't go to bed too late. Uh, the last point, though, is this is a great opportunity to learn, to use your minds. It's not just uh, 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 imposing other people's opinions. Think about these things. Question them. Question our speakers and our presenters and our professors. Discuss these things with yourself. These are hard questions that they're going to be addressing. And you can make up your own minds about them. And it's an opportunity to make new friends and enjoy yourselves to learn from a remarkable group of thinkers and doers in the law. Dana Berliner, who's Senior Vice President and Director of Litigation at Institute for Justice, which is a fabulous organization. I love IJ, I love what IJ has been able to accomplish uh, in the United States, and now one of my jobs has been helping groups in other countries, in India and Sweden and Lithuania and other countries to create their own institutes for justice there. Uh, Marcus Cole, who's the William F. Baxter Visa International Professor of Law at Stanford University Law School. And from my Cato colleagues, Clark Neely, who's Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, and Roger Pilon. Last but never, ever least, uh, Vice President, and if anyone knows Roger, you know what I mean, 
uh, Vice President for Legal Affairs and holder of the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. These are really remarkable people, and I'm looking forward to learning from them. And an opportunity to enjoy a really amazing city. Do not spend all the time on Bourbon Street, which is a little... Uh, I, I was here last night, and a lot of drunk people. But there are other beautiful, really fascinating parts of New Orleans, and this is just a great place to visit. Uh, as I mentioned, tomorrow morning, we're going to be having breakfast right across the way, starting at 8 o'clock. And then 9 o'clock, so I recommend getting in 8.55. It's enough time to find a chair, get a little comfortable, gossip a bit, and then we start at 9 o'clock. For the scholarship students, please talk to Katie uh, immediately following this. And we encourage you to continue the conversations. There are three bars in this hotel. I understand some of them offer alcoholic beverages as well. And there's lots of wonderful places uh, to uh, uh, wander around in New Orleans. So I will see you at 8.55 in the morning and start at 9. Thank you very much.